1989. For several nights um, after I was asked to speak on this Mission Sunday, I found it um, really difficult to sleep because I thinking of all the um, 10 or 12 different things that came to my mind that ought to be emphasized today. And um, you, you know, while I was not able to sleep, for some reason it came to my mind to count up how long I had been preaching. And I had been preaching for 59 years. I know you won't believe that because I, I know I don't even look that old. But, uh, but in those years of studying the Bible and preaching and trying to apply it to people's lives, I, there are some things that I feel real strongly about now, maybe that I didn't feel strongly about in those early years. And there are some things that I see much clearer now than I did in those years. And so I could come up with about 10 or 12 different things that I ought to talk about. But then an incident came to my mind that helped me decide what to do. I remember preaching at the Broadway Church in Lubbock, Texas on one Sunday night. And um, as I went to the pulpit to speak, that right up in the pulpit area placed in a position where only the speaker could see it was a wooden plaque. And on that plaque was a passage from John the 12th chapter in verse 21 which says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I hope that in the lesson this morning that what you will see is what God has been doing in Sudan through the Mount Juliet congregation and what we need to be doing. Everyone in this congregation needs to know about this work. The more you know about it, the better you're going to feel because you are a part of this work. Part of your contribution this morning and every Sunday goes to this work. Tonight, we're, um, there will be several speakers and tell you about different mission works the congregation's in, involved in. But this morning... I want to talk to you about the Sudan Project, which we now call the Sudan Bible School because it is now under construction. I believe that I'm correct in this, but I believe that there's more money from the mission fund goes into Sudan Project than any other aspect of our mission work. And certainly the scope of our, our work there is broader than any of the other works that we're engaged in because it encompasses a commitment to evangelize a whole nation. Now, you know, as, as we talk about these things, every time that I talk to congregations about this work, I, I like to go back to this passage that we read just a moment ago. Because in verse 27, Paul and Barnabas have come back from the first missionary journey. And they come back to Antioch, the church that sent them. And they recount to the congregation what God has done on that trip. 
and how he has opened the door to the Gentiles. So what I want you to see this morning is what God has done among the Sudanese and is doing and how he has opened a door to the entire Sudan nation through this congregation. I hope that um, you will see in this lesson this morning that is supposed to go off, but it's not. Maybe try that one. That does not work. Well, anyway, just don't pay attention to it. I hope that you will see in this lesson this morning that one of the greatest things in the world is to be involved in something where God is at work. Now, I I would be remiss in the lesson this morning if I didn't compliment the congregation here, and I think that you well deserve it, but this will be the last one you get from me unless there's an increase in the budget next year for Sudan. But the Mount Juliet congregation is as mission-minded as any congregation that I've known in my life, and I've known a lot of them. You are as generous in everything as any congregation that I've ever known. People who make a business of studying mission work, they're called missiologists. just wanted you to know that I knew that big word, and I think I can even spell it too. But they say that a congregation should put at least 10% of their contribution into mission work. And this year, the budget for missions in the Mount Juliet Church is $247,000, which represents 15% of the budget of this congregation. And we ought to spend a, a lesson or two sometime talking about how that we never need to lose that zeal that we have, and it ought to be that way 20 and 25 and 30 years from now as well. Let me emphasize to you what our goal is, what our primary objective is in Sudan, so that you'll know in the beginning this is what we're trying to do. We are trying to construct and set an operation, a preacher training school, Because it is our belief that the most effective and efficient way to evangelize the country of Sudan is to take the Christians that are already there and the teachers that we have that are capable of training preachers, take those Sudanese teachers and let them train Sudanese men so that they can go and preach to the Sudanese people. They don't need Americans they, they, they just need to be trained to preach. Now, as I'm always you know, talking to people about, um, about what we're doing in Sudan and what it's like, people want to know, well, what is it like to be there? What is it? Um, what is it? Across the road from our preacher training school campus, there is a, the school for the village of Parajok where our school is being constructed. It's a village of about 45,000 people, and across the road is, is the school, the school for that village. It's grades 1 through 8 only, and there are about 1,010 students in that school. As we visited the school, the headmaster told us that the teachers in that school only get $100 a week, a month, $100 a month. And he, as a headmaster, receives $157 a month. 
when he gets paid, he said. Doesn't always get paid. I've selected this because there's so many young people in the congregation and so many teachers that of all the things I could think about, this is one area I thought would help you to understand and see what it's like. And so as we visited there, I wanted to take a picture of the, of the, the one substantial structure that they have, but as we drove up in our car, we were swarmed by students and I couldn't get an opportunity to take the picture. This is a part of the campus. About half the campus looks exactly like this. And as you can see, some of those buildings have collapsed. This is one of the better school rooms in their best building. Now, this room has no books, no chairs. There is a blackboard there that's almost as old as I am. And there will be a hundred students in this school. And this is the best that they have. Now, there are about as many classes outside in buildings like this or in this one under a tree. And you can see this is a classroom because there's the blackboard up against the tree. This is what it's like. I can hardly wait till when we get there. And, and I must say to you that, too, in order to attend this school, the students have to pay. And most of the students in that village cannot pay. And 60 to 70% of the population of that village are children. And they cannot pay. So I'm looking forward to the day that perhaps we can do something for this school. And in return, they will allow us to teach the Bible to every student every day in that school. Because the ACLU is not in Sudan and the people in Sudan are perfectly happy for all the students to be taught the Bible there. Well, as we go throughout Sudan, you perhaps will wondering, well, what is happening when you go? And let me emphasize to you that it is not without problems. When we, when we go into Sudan, we first of all have to have a travel permit, and that permit has to be uh, obtained at a neighboring country to South Sudan. And so we have to go to Ethiopia, spend about three or four days there, do the paperwork for our, um, our, um, our permit, and then we can go in. So this year I, I wanted to, to see if I couldn't do it faster, and so I talked to the government of South Sudan liaison office in Washington, D.C., and they told me, well, you just send the paperwork here, and we will, fa we will email it on to, on to uh, uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and you will just go and pick it up, and the next day you can be on your way. And so that's what we, we plan to do. So we got there, went to their office. They had no idea what we were talking about. And I'd even received a copy of the emails. I knew it was sent. In addition to that... When we arrived in Juba, we were met by Isaiah Jackson, who will be our guide and who has been responsible for most of the preaching work among these people, the conversion of most of them. And uh, he took us to the hotel where he had made reservations for us. And he said he had visited the hotel three times to make sure that the reservation was good and they were expecting us. And so we go to this hotel, we walk in, ask for our rooms and they open up their book and they show us that our reservation has been canceled. He said, I don't know who canceled it or why they canceled it, but it is canceled and we don't have any rooms for you. 
The next day, we go to the bank. In order for us to not have to carry personally so much construction money, on October the 20th, I had wired $25,000 to our account in the bank we have in Juba. And so then when we get there, the next day I go by the bank to get the money, and they tell me that there is no money there. And this is about the 6th of November, and it usually takes five to seven days for the wire transfer to, to arrive. There is no money there. By this time, I am saying to the people who are accompanying me, you know, <clears throat> this what we're trying to do must be very important because the devil is doing all that he can to discourage us. But we keep going. One of the things that you want to do in Sudan is that you do not want to be driving at night. It is Sunday afternoon and we have to reach our objective before dark, where we're going to go. It's six o'clock that evening, it starts to get dark. The roads are bad, they are muddy, and they're filled with muddy, watery potholes. And uh, we're an hour and a half away from our objective, about 12 miles. And I sit in the car and I think about how slow we're going. And I think, okay, it's, it's 11 miles now. And now it's, maybe it's 10 miles. And now it's 9 miles. And we get down to where I figure we're about 7 miles from our objective. And all of a sudden, the car just stops. And we get out and wade around, out of the mud hole from the car and determine that we're on high center. Now, it's 7.30 at night, it's dark, and it's in Africa, and we know that no one is going to be coming down that road that could possibly help us get out of this thing until maybe noon the next day. And there we are, picture being stuck. I'm not in the picture, I'm not taking it. The man that's taking this picture, I, I look over at him, and he's chuckling. It's Mike Roman, who's an elder in... Uh, uh, Virginia, who's gone with us to take care of our construction work and oversee it. I ask him, what are you chuckling about? And he says, I'm chuckling because this is such a marvelous African experience. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad that one of us is thinking this is a good experience then. Well, we keep on going. We not only have no travel permit, we have no motel room, we have no money in the bank. We are stuck at night with no one to help us. And then one of the things that's kept me awake all of these nights too is the realization that when we get there and we start building this campus, how are we going to do How are we going to find a contractor? How are we going to find a contractor that is ethical, that will do good work, and will do the work while we're in the United States and we've left him there with money to pay for the materials and everything. And so we know of two men and we interview them and we decide they are not the ones that can do the work and so we have no contractor. Now before we had left Juba to start on this trip, we had gone to an advocate's office. An advocate there is a lawyer or an attorney. We want to be registered with the country of Sudan as a humanitarian organization so that we can do anything that we want to. We can drill water wells, we can have a clinic, we can have a school, we can do anything, and the government has given us authority to do that. And so you have to have a constitution written up, so he writes that constitution up for us. When we come back there, we 
go to his office, we proof the Constitution and make some changes in it. And then we say to them now, we have got to go back home to the USA day after tomorrow. Can you take this to the office of the Department of Legal Affairs and get it stamped and certified for us so we can take it home with us? So otherwise, you know, we have to wait till the next time we come back and we won't even know if they can find it by then. And the office people say, well, no, we can't do that. It will take at least a week or so, at least to get this done. So how would you feel at this point? Well, let me tell you how I felt. When we go in to, um, to get our travel permit, and they tell us that they don't have the paperwork, perchance there is a, a member of the Sudanese congregation that, has a, that knows we're coming and he meets us at the door. And he takes our refilled out paperwork and he takes it to all the offices. And by three o'clock that afternoon, we have our permit. When we don't have any hotel rooms, Isaiah calls a hotel that recommended this one and tells them we don't have any room. And they sent him here because they didn't have any rooms. They said, well, we have rooms now. Why don't you come on back here? And we do. We have no money in the bank. But the man gets on the phone and he calls his office, main office in Nairobi, Kenya. And they say, well, yes, it's here. We'll, we'll get it there tomorrow. And so we go back tomorrow and the money is there. We're stuck at night. And about 15 minutes after we're stuck, a motorbike comes by, a man and his wife on the back of it. And they stop to talk to us. I just ask him, will you go on in to the next village, which is where we're going? Will you go to my brother's house and ask him to send a truck out here to help us get out of this mud hole? And so in about two hours, a truck comes. And it's a big truck, and in the back of it are about 10 or 12 big Sudanese men, and they get out, and they look at it, and they, um, they're all talking at the top of their voice all at once for about five minutes, and then they quit talking, and they get, they get down in the mud, and they take that vehicle, and they manhandle it out of the hole, and then they knock off the high center so that we can go. And then we don't have a contractor. The church leaders tell us that across the road from where we are that we can see there's a lodge being built. And they say the man who's building that seems to be doing good work. So um, Mike Roman, our man, goes over there and looks at him. He says it looks like it's good work. Isaiah says, I'll go talk to him, get acquainted with him, and see if he can, will come over and talk to you about doing your work. He comes back in a little bit and he says, I know that man. He's a Christian. I baptized him in Juba about a year ago. And then we have no certificate. So the next day we decide we're going to go to the office of the Department of Legal Affairs. And as Isaiah says, we will try to talk to the top dog there. So we, we go in. And we go to a window trying to find somebody that's there. This is early in the morning. We find a window. There's a man behind it and... His name is James. Isaiah gives him our constitution. He looks at it. On the front page it says, Church of Christ Humanitarian Mission in South Sudan. He says, Church of Christ, 
I'm a member of the Church of Christ. He said, I was baptized in Juba, in Ethiopia, in Addis, in 1997. We didn't know there was a church here in, in, in Juba, and we've been, a group of us have been meeting over at the university. So how would you feel? Well, you know, folks, I, I don't speak in tongues. <laughs> I'm not a charismatic Pentecostal. I, I can't do... I can't heal people. Although on occasions when I've walked around this building and I go into a classroom that's dark, I've noticed the lights will come on automatically for me. But I believe I have seen the providence of God in this work. I have seen God making it possible to evangelize Sudan by working through this congregation. Let me show you how God has been preparing for this work for a long time. Isaiah Jackson, on the right of, the, of this picture, has been primarily responsible for the conversion of most of the people in Sudan. Every time I look at this picture, I realize what an Oreo cookie feels like, too. But <laughs> Isaiah came to the United States as an international refuge. He was converted in Houston, Texas. He goes to Sunset School and then he goes back to Sudan to work. This is Joseph Lagubali. Joseph was a refugee to South Africa. He was converted in South Africa and then went to the South African Bible College for three years. Studied even Greek and Hebrew. Now he's back in Juba. He will be one of our teachers. Here's a man by the name of Elias. It's not a very good picture because I had to take this off of a bulletin I saw someplace. Elias went to Nigeria as an international refugee, was converted in Nigeria. This summer he will graduate from three years of Bible training at a school that's a Church of Christ preachers there. This man is Jacob Jock. Jacob, or John, John was converted as an international refugee in Ethiopia. He's been through two levels of their preacher training school there. John has gone to school, and he's certified nurse now, and he can even staff a clinic for us. You see, this is how God has been preparing men in other countries to come back and be the faculty in this school. So what is our money doing? Well, this congregation is an opari. We visited. This is the, the two years ago when Griff and I visited there. This, this, this church was not even in existence. We stopped and preached to Samuel Carey's family and friends. And, and this was the church on the Sunday that we were there last November. Do you see all the little black heads in that picture? 60 to 70% of the population of South Sudan is children. And that says to me that we need to emphasize the teaching of our children. Raise them up in the church rather than waiting until they're 25 or 30 years old and then try to convert them. When we go to on to where we're going to build the preacher training school, we need help. And so 6 o'clock at night, we decide we will meet at 7 the next morning and try to go to work putting a fence around our property. We've been given 24 acres of land there on a major, major road. So at 7 o'clock the next morning, there are about, seven, about 30 men there ready to go to work. This lady came to do construction work. Um, she was going to help us put the fence up, but they told her that 
won't you carry the water around for all the men? Here, Mike Roman is looking at the plans for the campus, determining where the buildings go. Here he's telling them, okay, move it over this way a little bit, the line for the fence so it'll be, be straight. And so these men get started busy clearing the ground, clearing the path for the fence that will go around the property. And here they're measuring so every five feet, which will go a, a post for the fence. And now then they're pl- putting a stake in the ground that will show them where there's to be a hole dug to put a, to put a post. And here they are digging the post holes, and there are 1,060 post holes that have to be dug. And here these men, now in, back in November, were, were clearing the ground for the buildings that we're going to put on this campus to so train these preachers. And while these men are clearing the ground, there's another group of men that are out in the countryside. And with machetes, they're cutting up some of the hardest woods you've ever seen that will be the post and there are five truckloads, 1,060 of these, and they carry them to where the holes are being dug. And then they put them in there, and then they'll tamp them down straight. And here the men are, are unrolling the barbed wire. There will be five strands of barbed wire, you see, going on these posts around this campus. And then here they are attacking it so that now we have a fence around the campus. This is a picture of one of the men in the family that the congregation supports that, uh, that um, uh, we have been supporting for a number of years, Andrew. This is how we cook there. Now, I received these pictures Thursday. These are the pictures of how the campus is going now. And the trenches are being built for the, uh, for the foundations. And here sand and gravel and cement is being mixed for the foundations and our contractors pictured sitting here on the front of it. And this will be the beginning of the foundation for the building that will, that will train our preachers. You know, this building that we're going to have is going to cost us $150,000. We had raised $100,000 just so that we could build it, and we thought that would be enough, but we had only an educated guess. And um, then inflation bit into it, and we will have to raise another $50,000. But that's not very much when you think about $150,000, which is less than what we spend on our homes here. And that will last for another 50 years. And what it will do is that it will be a building where men will be trained every year to go preach the gospel all over a country that is the size of Texas. You see, folks, all of this going into all the world is a partnership. These men cannot do what they can. We cannot do what they can do. They know the culture. They live in it. They know the language. We don't. But they cannot do it without our help to be trained. We're going to return in March of this year. I will be accompanied by Mike, who take care of the construction, and by Jeremy Thompson, and a superintendent of schools in Texas, who will be our, our academic, academic dean, and one of the editors of the Christian Chronicle will be going with us. Well, you say, what, what effect does our money that we're spending there have? This is the Parajot congregation where our preacher training school will be built. 
if you will look at it, they have their arms up in the air. They're waving to you in this picture. Many have told me to tell you thank you. And you know, folks, when we get to heaven, I can imagine that somebody will come up to you and say, I didn't know you on earth, but you were part of the Mount Juliet congregation of of God's church. And the Mount Juliet church built a preacher training school in Sudan to train preachers. One of the preachers that was trained in that school came to my home village. And he preached the gospel to me, and I became a Christian. I became a Christian because of you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we want you to know we're very glad that you're here. And we're as glad and we're as interested in you as we are in the people in, in Sudan. But you know, folks, in the, in the years that I've preached, I have learned some things. And one of the things that I have learned in trying to preach the gospel and study the Bible and help people apply it to their lives is the tenuousness and the uncertainty of life. I remember the night, the Christmas Eve, that my family and I were opening our presents, and I got a phone call from a lady whose husband had just had a heart attack and died. I remember when I was five years old that my brother was riding on a bicycle home from church on Sunday morning. A car hit him and he was killed. I remember that when I was a young boy, that my father was not a Christian. He would not take us to church very often. And when I got old enough to drive, and he didn't go at all, I only remember him coming one time to church, and that was when the congregation invited me to preach one night, and he came, sat on the back row, and by the look on your, his face, you could tell he would, there were a thousand places he would rather have been than there, but he had to. His son was preaching, you know. But then I remember that when he was 67... That one morning, my mother went to another town to her doctor. And while she was gone, he called the preacher and said that he wanted to be baptized. So they had the baptism. When he came out of the dressing room to sit on the front row with some of the church members that had come, that they had a prayer in the middle of the prayer. He had a heart attack and died. Now you say, well, are you trying to scare me? And I say, no, not necessarily. But what I am trying to do is to get you to make an intellectual decision because you know you don't have any proof that you're going to make it home today. But intellectually, you do know that you can be a Christian and your soul can be right with God before you walk out of this building and then it really won't matter concerning your soul about what happens to you on the way home. 
Perhaps you say, well, I'd, I'd like to, but I don't know enough. And if you don't, then tell us and we'll study with you. Whatever it takes, whatever you need, you'll come and you'll tell us about it. We'll help you with it. And we invite you to do so while we stand and sing. On Jordan's stormy banks, I stand and cast so high.